And so I learned while researching this book that Franklin Pierce was a man of great contradictions, a self-proclaimed moderate whose attempts to build consensus only drove the country apart, a son of privilege who led a charmed public life and a cursed private one, and, in summation, a fascinating subject for a biography. Before I sign your first editions of my book, Franklin Pierce, An American Life, I'll take a few questions. Yes? Did you ever consider writing a horror novel about Franklin Pierce? No more than I would consider writing male-male erotica about Pierce having a youthful affair with his Bowden classmate Nathaniel Hawthorne. Who on earth would write a horror novel about Franklin Pierce? Me, actually. I'm Andrew Piper, author of The Residence. That's a very specific disclaimer, Dr. Nair. I wonder if thou doth protest too much. I doth not. And despite what certain subreddits would have you believe, I could come up with a better title than The House of the Seven Inches. Are there any more questions? Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today's episode, President 14, Franklin Pierce. What you are about to hear in this podcast is a mashup. Partly sketch comedy in a radio comedy vein, and partially discussions about presidents and history and how that changes. The folks you'll be hearing are DB Comedy, a political sketch comedy company that's been working in Chicago since 2006, where actors, writers, producers, and directors, along with actual real-life historians and experts in all things presidential. Thanks for downloading. Hope you like it. As we are walking through the series of presidents that lead us to the Civil War, we here at DB Comedy and the Electables Podcast have been inviting other guests to talk about all things presidential, about uh, as we head up to the Great War or the Great War of the 19th century. And so to I that think extent, Great War is copyrighted, Joe. For, for World War One, too, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. The, I don't the, want to be sued by the descendants of General Perching. The vast unpleasantness. As we are now up to the great, the wonderful, the barely known, but inordinately handsome Franklin Pierce, we invite to the DB Podcast Airwaves. Yeah, I'm I'm Andy Baides, and I am the uh, creator and co-writer of 45 Plays for 45 Presidents and 45 Plays for America's First Ladies. Great. And where was the were these done? Because we have a national and international audience. Ah, so originally the Neo Futurists performed uh, both of them, forty-five plays, which actually originally was forty-three, and has been published and republished as forty-four and forty-five, and has been um, performed all over the country and and a couple of uh, European productions actually. Excellent. How the hell did you get, I mean, I, I know it was a collaborative process, but how did you get stuck with Franklin Pierce? Did you draw a short stick? <laughs> <laughs> or um, a handsome stick? Yeah, well, so we it, we sat around like uh, a poster that I had that had all the president's faces and names on them. 
and we said, all right, like who do we like already know about who we're interested in learning more about and would like to write about? Like somebody, you know, and a lot of those are all the sort of well-known presidents. Like I might take this guy, I might take this guy. And then there was a whole bunch of randos left over and we just kind of divided them up. Like, uh, you know, why don't you, like we just kind of looked like, well, you're here, I'm here. Let's kind of think about where the writers are and not give every, like I didn't want to give one writer like three slots in a row, for example, right? Because we, we really want a variety. So we just kind of spread ourselves out. Uh, well, you know, Andy, uh, considering we kind of went through a, uh, a, a similarly themed process uh, as you guys putting together 45 uh, presidents, uh, what was it like having written the show for W. Bush and then updating it in light of Barack Obama and then again in the light of He Who Shall Not Be Named? Um, yeah. did you did you go and like did you have to redo some of the other uh plays for uh the new kind of presidency that we had to look yeah, at it in a different light or that's that's been like a, a hard and interesting blessing over the years is that like uh people keep doing this show and we want to keep it current so um, when it was 43 presidents, even we we didn't just do like a W play and then an Obama play and then a Trump play. Like there were several W plays to keep it up to date because this the story of a person's presidency changes really really frequently. Like I mean you know it's, uh, just look at Trump is kind of an extreme example. I mean, you could have written like 20 plays during his because it's like oh it's this impeachment no it's that impeachment no it's you know we have to write a new play every week. <laughs> really good basically yeah very much like the neo future yeah. is probably like three yeah. times a day sometimes i'm like, sure i'm sure right yeah so so it was it was uh it was interesting so we, yeah we had to we we had to do it frequently um and usually what happens is like it happens pretty much the same way it's happened all three times you have like a play that um you write for the presidency kind of early on and then it's like, oh crap, there's like, like later you come up with another play and then two or three plays in, it's like, um, okay, I think I've got the right form and all, all I need to do is kind of update it. And um, that's kind of like Obama's was, was one that actually like uh, the form stayed intact through the whole thing, but we just kept, I just kept changing the lyrics to the, to the piece. It uh, was, was there one of the presidents who uh, change the most or change in a surprising way between 43 presidents and 45 other than uh, you know B W Obama think, and Trump yeah I think W's has was actually the one that was the most kind of flip floppy um, where it was like we thought at one point there was like a draft where it was like be kind of edgy to like not bash him like this sort of like acknowledge that everybody hates him that say like, okay, like here's this guy everyone hates. Is there anything good about him? Right? Like what can we kind of tease out? Um, and then uh, kind of afterwards saying, nah, fuck that. Right? And then like <laughs> bashing him again. Welcome to another edition of The Wrong Side of History. My guest today is John C. Calhoun, longtime senator of South Carolina and rabid slavery advocate. Thanks for having me. So, Senator, you are well known for your fire-eating stance on slavery. Do you think that defending that particular peculiar institution really puts you on the right side of history? 
Absolutely. It's in the Constitution, right there in the three-fifths clause. Slavery is God-given and enshrined. Well, yes, but the three-fifths clause was nothing more than a way to figure out how to count non-free persons for representation purposes. It doesn't the mean... The three-fifths clause clearly means that slavery is forever and permanently etched into the laws of this land. Really? So you believe you're on the right side of history? Of course. History will show slavery is a glorious and civilized institution and will throw the dirty northern industrial capitalists in the dustbin. Well, Senator, I hate to break Southern this to you. Southerners love history. We don't want anything to change. Okay. Abolitionists are trampling on my freedom. And you don't see the irony in that statement. I don't get your point. You do realize you are a one percenter? I'm not following you. Only 1.4% of Americans actually owned slaves. How could such a tiny proportion of the population have such a disproportionate stranglehold on national policies? Well, we also possess a disproportionate percent of the nation's wealth, so it's all fair. <laughs> but isn't that actually the Besides, problem? Besides, our Constitution guarantees minorities protections against the mob rule of the majority. How dare they criticize my biblically ordained rights? Would you criticize Moses? But you can't I'm not going to talk about this anymore. But Sweet what about... home, Alabama. You won't allow Congress to even mention Carolina slavery? Morning. Can we just talk about the problem here? Fine. Since you're not going to take your fingers out of your ears, let's bring in our next guest, a staunch member of the NRA and fierce advocate for gun rights. Evening, ma'am. What's this guy's deal? I oppose any legislation that takes away my rightful property. Oh. Well, brother, I don't know what you're mad about, but I sure can sympathize. Hmm, that's I just want to protect, protect my, my way, way of life. life. Damn straight. Um, before you go there, maybe you should know it's that... It's in the Constitution, Constitution damn it. it. Where have I heard this before? You tell him, son. But your way of life is deadly. It breeds violence. It's, it's just, just a few, few bad apples. apples. I mean, it's the whole bunch, girl. It's not the guns. It's a mental health issue. The violence and cruelty, though, they're not a bug. They're a feature of your ways of life. The perpetrators know exactly what they are doing. Your way of life relied on the forced servitude of hundreds of thousands of... No people. one is taking away my property. I hear you, bro, from my cold, dead hands, am I right? <laughs> I mean, how dare you rush new gun regulations to Congress immediately after every mass shooting? It's too soon. You're imposing your politics on the corpses of those victims. The Second Amendment clearly says my rights shall not be abridged. Well, the last four words, anyway. The well-regulated militia part doesn't get too much attention. Most Americans support sensible gun laws. <sighs> Those un-American snowflake commies are trying to strip real Americans' guns from us. Hey, you want to help me bring back my constitutional rights? Sure, I'm all for the Constitution and protecting individual liberties. Finally, someone who understands. Do you really want to hitch your horse to this guy's wagon? What do you mean? It's about private property. Damn straight. Then you'll help me repeal the 13th Amendment? Sure. Um, what's the 13th Amendment? Um, the one that freed the slaves. What? What? Uh, what? No! Ew. I mean, sl slavery was evil. Horrible people owned slaves. Slave owners just did what they could get away with. 
People who go on killing rampages aren't all mentally ill. They are filled with the same rage and dehumanization that enabled slave owners to brand, whip, and chain other human beings. So think carefully before you, too, end up on the wrong side of history. Join us next week when our guests will be an investor in Betamax and the proud zealot behind the communist witch hunts of the 1950s, Senator Joseph McCarthy. This has been The Wrong Side of History. So Franklin Pierce was a weird president to do. He was the 14th president of the United States, obviously. He was a Northern Democrat, um, but who was he was a fiercely anti-abolitionist uh, president. And frankly, a lot of terrible things uh, that went into his residency that, that uh, really contributed largely to setting the stage for Buchanan failing as hard as he did to cause the Civil War, which is why our initial play was just let's um, keep it a little lighthearted and turn it into a, a beauty contest between all the other presidents judged by, of course, the two allegedly homosexual presidents, Abraham Lincoln and James Buchanan. Who were not a couple. Who were not a couple, (laughs) um, as far as we're aware. Uh, And as far as I was concerned writing it, um, the three hottest presidents have been JFK, Calvin Coolidge, and Franklin Pierce. (laughs) Like you gotta, you gotta think about Calvin Coolidge, but yeah. like, like he's got it. He do you do really? It. Do you really? A little bit. Oh. I mean, a little bit. He's just got like that sort of patrician, steely eye, blue eyed thing going on. I don't know. But Franklin Pierce has the best hair. Yeah, he looks like he looks like Tom Hiddleston. Uh, but, distance. Yeah. but come on, you you gotta put Obama in that list, don't you? I mean, if you're being pandering, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Obama definitely beats Calvin Coolidge. (laughs) I mean, that's I agree. (laughs) I mean, I just thought it would be funnier to say Calvin Coolidge than Obama, Joe. Let's just just put the cards on the table. It worked. I would have have gone for one of the guys with the mutton chops as the third. So there you go. That's fair. That's fair. And we've had other arguments as to who had the best presidential mutton chops, (laughs) which is a fierce debate as well. Well, how about so let's so let's as we ease into peer into the I mean Martin Van Buren. I'm sorry, it's always Martin Van Buren. One would think. Yeah. I vote for Chester Arthur. See, <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, related so, to Martin Van Buren. <laughs> so I think, Frank, honestly, okay. I think he's a cousin of mine. Is he really? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, like see, one of our former cast members is also a long distant uh, 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 James Polk, James K. Polk. Our only cannibal president, but you'll have to listen to the episode <laughs> to understand that. <laughs> or let Paul explain it to you. Okay, well, yeah, so Andy, uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about... It's a little choppy, how, About how, uh, how Franklin Pierce got to be uh, the, the Northern Democrat choice and, and how, how he got into the White House. Um, it, it's pretty lame. He just sort of didn't bother anyone. <laughs> yeah, it like, you know, it's surprising how often that's the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he was probably the worst example of the least objectionable president. This was a, a time when the country was on the verge of civil war. He believed strongly that, like, you know, you need to just give the South whatever they want, and that'll keep the union together, and that that's more important. 
and and he was a he was from the north but sympathized with the south a doe face in other words a doe face that's right and uh he, he was not anybody's first choice it was it was like you know like that like when uh when they selected trump on the republican uh nomination process it was like nobody could make up their minds right like because it was like uh, just a really like uh, you know the direction of the party was in such it was in such debate. It was like, who, who the heck? Every everybody sort of makes somebody mad, right? Like every somebody's you know objectionable for some reason. And so they were in a similar situation. I think it was like the thirty sixth ballot at the convention. They were like, well, what about this guy? You know, and uh, and he won. And he was just uh, he was just a former congress congressman. He was a Pierce beat his old commander Winfield Scott in the eighteen fifty two race. Yeah, yeah, the one who saw him faint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it came up in the in the election. I think that he teased it about it in the election or during the during the, uh, the campaign, which may turn into the first time somebody said, "I can't believe I'm losing to this guy." <laughs> and so, especially uh, since the Democrats' uh, slogan was that they were going to pierce their enemies in 1852, just like they had poked them in 1844, which has got to be, if not the worst campaign slogan, that one definitely like up there. I hope the song was better. <laughs> I mean, it's no typical new and Tyler too. But... Yeah, or I like Ike. <laughs> so I'm curious because one of the things that, as we've been discussing various presidents, again, particularly in this sort of run up to the Civil War era, is this question of how ambitious were they? Were a lot of these guys that became president really want to be president? Or, like you said, did it just kind of fall into their laps, so to speak. Oh, he wanted it. He was like lobbying privately. Like he made it look like he wasn't running. And he, there was a period of time, and I don't remember when it stopped, but there was a uh, a period when presidents didn't, they kind of ran behind the scenes. They made it look like they were not running, but they were in fact running. Yeah, yeah it was, uh, exactly. Lincoln was the first one who basically yeah. openly- Was ran. it? Stephen Douglas was the first one that would do a national tour. Hmm. And just stuck these speeches across the country. Awesome, cool, yeah, yeah. So, so he was, yeah, he was, he was one of those folks who just wrote letters and said, you know, you, you might want to think about me. Like nobody, I get along with everybody, right? And would, he did. Would, in his Ranked letters, everybody. would you say that he did protest too much because he kept saying, "Oh no, I shouldn't be president. Not me, never. I would ne Don't even think of putting me on the ballot. Don't even put my name forward." <laughs> They said he was a war hero, but he was not. He fell off his horse, crushed his leg, fainted. Right? <laughs> hold on, um, hold on, hold on. Let's hear that story, if you know it. <laughs> um, so uh, I don't know all the details, but yeah, he, he, he ran into battle. He charged down the hill and, and something happened. He fell off his horse. The horse fell on him. He hurt his leg and it hurt so much, he fainted. And um, and they, they used to call him a nickname, I forget what it was. I want to say it was Fainting Freddy, but I'm not sure if that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, and this, and this would Fainting have been the, uh, the Mexican-American War of 1845. It was the Mexican, uh, yes, it was the Mexican-American War, yeah. It, which yeah. he joined later, but uh, did not distinguish himself, shall we say, although he, in the Nathaniel Hawthorne biography, let me say hagiography, wow. of all things, he kept referring to him as General Pierce which is a yeah. title he did not earn through any military means. He just kind of, it was just kind of given to him. It was, yeah. He, he, was, he, was, he was a brigadier general. Yeah. I, I think it's probably because he was a member of Congress, would be my guess. He was a former member of Congress.
Will this pose suffice, Mr. Louis? It certainly will, President Pierce. You do look magnificent on that horse. Thank you. The horse was a gift. I understand your history with horses is not the best. Uh, Which is why you are here to capture my likeness with this new portraiture technique. <laughs> why sit for hours and days when you can capture my likeness in mere seconds with the... Uh, with the uh, daguerreotype. Daguerreotype. I am familiar with your picture of former President Polk. It is why I summoned you here. I should warn you about the portrait. You may capture my image when you are ready. I shall do my and best. I shall continue with the management of this country. It's quite challenging. Take this Kansas-Nebraska Act, for instance. I shall as soon as I can. Now, now Mr. President, in a moment... I thought the Kansas-Nebraska Act would be the very solution to the slavery issue. Take all areas of this country space for most factions. Please mind your horse for but just a moment. either sir. side happy with it? There will be a flash. <laughs> Mr. President! Oh. Mr. President, I, I tried to warn you to hold your horse for the flash. Oh, my head. Yes, yes, please. Oh, oh dear, I do apologize. Did, did we I... capture the daguerreotype? I... I don't believe we did. Ugh. The Flash can startle man and beast, sir. I... Well, I suppose we shall have to try again. I can return as soon as you are recovered. Oh, recovered? <laughs> Not nonsense, right? Back! Up! Back! Mr. President? Can you give me a boost? Are you sure? There! Back up on the horse. Just as I said I would, I am back. Still seemed to be quite a fall. Franklin Pierce, undeterred and riding high for America. Please prepare another dagger snipe. Mr. President, while, while your perseverance will serve as a symbol for all of us to help you make the decisions to make this country unified again... I do hope you understand the difficulty of the portrait with your horse. I think one more attempt will do the job, my good man. It cannot be said you do not have tenacity. I hope that is the case. People shall see that I have returned, as I did in the war with Mexico. Uh, be prepared for the flash of the powder, Mr. As Pre the citizens are reminded of the heroism as we march to enforce the American boundary with Mexico. Uh, hold steady. We can then turn our attention to that traitor John Brown in Kansas. Uh, hold... Mr. President! The leg I wounded from that battle is aching again. Sir, perhaps a formal portrait is a better method than your dear horse. I... Oh, enough people think I was a coward in Mexico that I will not let a light deter me. I don't want people to think I was the one that wounded no, Nonsense, me. nonsense. If I can't even get on the horse... Steady, sir! If I cannot balance and sit on my own horse... There you are. How can this country think I will be able to balance and sit this country through these infernal arguments about slavery? <laughs> right, my friend? Turn the horse back to the barn. I apologize, Mr. President. The, the flash can it's be... It's not your fault, dear sir. No, that's fine. What if we were to take the portrait in the Oval Office, where, where presumably nobody can be startled, and you can sit on a chair that you will not be thrown from? That's, that's a good plan, dear sir. Uh, we, can, we can capture that image after I... Oh! After you recover? 
I wanted to make sure both my legs are in one piece. Literally. Indeed. Again, my apologies. Can you carry me back to the Oval Office? <clears throat> You're as strong as you are patient. I am loath to harm the leader of our country. You're a good man. You did look magnificent on that horse. I did, didn't I? Whoops! Interesting people in Pierce's circle. Uh, <laughs> his his cabinet had some notable names that we've encountered before and will encounter again. Uh, his vice president was William King, aka the uh, person who Buchanan. allegedly had an affair with James Buchanan. Oh, that that same William King. Um, and his Pierce's Secretary of War is Jefferson Davis, the future president of the Confederacy. Interesting. So I, I guess as if other... you needed more evidence of yeah. Pierce's <laughs> leanings. Amazing. Very cool. So you mentioned Stephen Douglas. Were they? I mean, they were obviously contemporaries. Um, were they buddies? Were they in the same party? Did they share the same? I don't know if they're buddies, but they did. They were both. Um, Democrats and pro-slavery and you know Douglas Douglas was like a, a racist I don't know that he cared a ton about slavery one way or the other I, I you know but I, he wanted um, I mean so he wanted the transcontinental railroad to go through Chicago and so that's how he got it he was the one who pushed for the Kansas Nebraska Act and convinced Franklin Pierce to support that which was a big, big fat mistake. Sandy, you wanted to ask about Kansas? Yeah. Yeah. What what was the matter with Kansas? <laughs> why, oh. you know, what was going on in Kansas and why was that a big deal and why that was sort of like the precursor to the Civil War, no? That was what kind of yeah. where it all focused initially. Yeah, certainly where like the most violence was, um, you know, you had like riots in Boston for after uh, the Fugitive Slave Act was passed in Franklin Pierce's administration. But then you also had this awful Kansas, Nebraska Act. The whole country wanted like the big issue with slavery, but how it played out was in these new territories. So the country was kept adding states. And every time they added a state, it was like, well, is it going to be a slave state or a free state? Right. So. Kansas was in contention. They had this Missouri compromise that said, you know, everything north of here is going to be free. Everything south of here um, can enslave people. Um, and uh, Kansas was, I think, in a free area, I believe, but um, I don't remember what the controversy was, but they decided the, the Kansas-Nebraska Act was, let's just let the people who live there decide whether or not there should be slavery. And so, um, Factions formed very quickly. I got really, really violent. John Brown went down there and and killed um, five slave owners um, and was lionized in the North for it. Uh, there was a there was that famous caning in Congress. It was Charles Sumner. Did he do the caning? Yes, it is a Charles Sumner uh, attacked by uh, Preston Brooks. Oh, okay. So he was the one who was caned. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then everybody in the South lionized him. Um, so it was like a little mini civil war that happened um, in Kansas. And, and Franklin Pierce was just kind of like, 
oh, like, you know, it's not my real responsibility. Yeah, and, uh, and for the benefit of my listeners, um, so the Missouri Compromise uh, established the 3630 Northern Latitude as the the line that above which there would be no slavery, below which there would be legalized slavery, uh, which was the Mason-Dixon line, hence Dixie. Uh, but then in... Uh, was it in the 1850s, uh, Franklin Pierce and Stephen Douglas, in order to win Southern votes, uh, campaigned on abolishing the Missouri Compromise and establishing the Kansas Nebraska Act, which would allow new territories to vote whether or not they would be slave or free based on pop- popular sovereignty. And so uh, in Kansas, both factions of abolitionists and slaveholders uh, sent in their own parties to basically try to put enough bodies into Kansas that they could vote one way or the other, um, culminating in the, uh, the the abolitionists passing a state constitution for Kansas, which then the pro-slavery party ignored and passed their own uh, Kansas constitution, which had pretty obvious results. <laughs> Inca versus Lecompton, as I recall. Yeah, the Lecompton, uh, the Lecompton Constitution was the, the pro-slavery one, where they they had just basically shipped in a lot of people from other states to vote up a uh, a pro-slavery constitution. Hmm. And Pierce supported the Lecompton, Lecompton Constitution. Yeah, well, it, uh, Pierce was Pierce was the one who put, who pushed through the uh, Kansas Nebraska Act in the first place, and so he was while presidents uh, favored that constitution. And like you said, the, like one of the big examples for that was the caning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which, I mean, um, I think that was the only time somebody nearly died of somebody else's hand on the floor of this, uh, on the floor of the legislature. Am I wrong, everybody? There were times when pistols were brandished but I think yeah. that was a. I think it's the only actual assault that ever happened. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. May I see the man of the house? He's in town. May I help you? If I may introduce myself, I am Mr. Harper Edgefield, and if I may ask a question, is there anyone in this household in need of a new walking stick or cane? Why do you ask? If I may reply, I am a salesman, and here in my possession I have an array of some of the finest walking sticks and canes that you may find this side of the Mississippi River, and I am sure someone in this lovely household would be proud to own one. Hmm. We live in Kansas, and there's nothing on this side of the Mississippi River. Just look at this lovely example. Made of some of the finest African elephant tusks ever hunted down by man. With a brass knob so brightly polished, the sun will gleam off it, and you can see yourself. This just looks like cheap wood. The, the paint is sticking on my well, hands. Well, then look at this lovely example. Sturdy, elegant, a handle that can sport to the heftiest of men. Take a look. Let me see. I don't think that... If I may, madam, you are clearly a discerning consumer. So let me show you the top walking cane that you can own this afternoon. I doubt that. This, this is the Preston Brooks Memorial Cane. The who? The Preston Brooks Memorial Cane. 
Who is Preston Brooks? Preston Brooks is the fine representative from the state of South Carolina who defended the honor of his state and this very union with a cane that was shaped and weighted just as this very cane is that you see here. Defended the state with a cane? Did he kill someone with it? Indeed he did. I was joking. I am not. I can see that. Are you impressed? I am repulsed. Why would someone be defending the honor of the Union by trying to kill someone with a cane? It was on the floor of the United States Congress when an argument broke out over the slave question, which I am sure you are familiar with being from the Kansas Territory. I am not ignorant. When Senator Charles Sumner spoke and threatened to make Kansas an anti-slave state, he claimed that those who defended slavery were harlots. This so enraged the fine representative Preston Brooks that he went into the chamber with a cane that had just the kind of craftsmanship and strength that could be used to defend such honor by using it multiple times on the head and body of Senator Sumner. That is horrible. If I may say, I do not comment on the politics, but I can vouch strongly and proudly for the walking device that was used, for it did not break, it did not crack, it did not so much as splinter, it stayed in one piece throughout the attack, and imagine what such a cane could do for someone in this household if it has that kind of American craftsmanship. Indeed. May I? Here you are. Doesn't it seem like... Fantastic! Girl! Where? Fantastic! I'll take two. If I may, ma'am, you will not regret your purchase. No squirrel was harmed during the recording of this sketch. Paul, since you introduced Andrew to us, you can introduce him formally. Fans of DB Comedies, The Electables, please welcome Andrew Piper, author of The Residence. And the only child, and another any other other of your books you'd like to plug, sir? Oh, uh, well, there's there's ten of them, but I'll mention one, the demonologist, because it's it's made me the most money, and therefore I feel the most gratitude toward it. <laughs> Excellent. And the residence is a historical based horror novel. Now, this is not a large genre. You were saying. It's not enormous, and then if you kind of further focus it on, uh, you know, American presidents, it's it gets even. It's just my book and uh, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. I think that's it. So when do we get the movie version of your book? Right. Oh, good question. I hope relatively soon. uh, We're developing um, the book as a. They're calling it a hybrid docu feature for the, the Discovery Channel. So half of it'll be proper history. And half of it will be based on my novel. That is, you know, extrapolations and made up scare stuff uh, based on real events. So there, the History Channel didn't want that. We pitched, <laughs> we pitched the History <laughs> Channel. We pitched the History Channel, and it went really well. But it was it, they rightly pointed out that there just simply wasn't enough history uh, in in the novel. Yeah. Uh, you should have had should have had some pawn shops in there. That I was going to uh, say, you couldn't get Franklin Pierce to visit. Uh, Vegas with uh, American Pickers. Right. <laughs> I wish I'd known that. Now, I thought there was plenty of history in the novel when I read it because I've done a little bit of research on one of America's least distinguished presidents, Mr. Pierce. So what attracted you, a writer of gothic horror and someone with a really good sense of the history of the gothic novel? I got that from uh, I got that from The Only Child, where one person is the muse for Dracula, Frankenstein, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. What drew you to the Pierce administration? Well, I never heard of Franklin Pierce. Uh, but I was actually, 
I, I was I was just sort of goofing around online one day. I wasn't even trying to. I was working on a completely different project, uh, and I was just sort of googling haunted houses generally, and fell down a rabbit hole that led me to the White House, which I I'd, I'd known had a haunted history of a kind of you know kind of if you're in Washington and you do the tour, here's this silly story kind of level. Um, but down further that same hole, I found Jane Pierce, the first lady to Franklin Pierce, and so. It was her and not Franklin that drew me to this story and her particularly tragic life and the letters that she wrote um, when she arrived at the White House to her last and most recently deceased of all of her children who were all deceased, uh, Benny, who died in a tragic train accident. And she wrote letters to him, pleading with him to return to her. And according to the letters, he did in material form. And when I read that and when I read her letters, I knew that there was a novel there. Damn, try not writing a book about Ooh. that. Benny died on the way to Washington, didn't he? it? Yeah, they were on their way. Uh, they were leaving, uh, I think it was Concord, and um, or going to, sorry, sorry, going to Concord, which was their home before moving to Washington. And yeah, and he was the only fatality in that derailment. Um, quite a bizarre, uh, and of course, in the novel, I use this as if it's not entirely accidental, but I really... In real terms, I mean, a bizarre and given that the losses of that family, that couple had already endured, that is, their, their two other children had died in, in, you know, in recent months prior. It's it just an unimaginable loss just on, the, just on the eve of the inauguration. Uh, not only that, but um, an inauguration that Mrs. Pierce wasn't particularly wanting to visit because she, my understanding was she kind of didn't want uh, Franklin to be president or to run for president. Oh, yeah, very much so. She, in fact, made him promise not to uh, further his political ambitions. She talked him into giving up the political life. And for a while he did. He was a, you know, a town solicitor and uh, they were doing quite well, but he was drawn back into it. Um, he was recruited uh, by Nathaniel Hawthorne, among others, who talked him into you know, you're the savior, you're the democratic uh, guy. And he was, he was a very, everyone who met him noted how handsome he was, how uh, he presented so well. And in the novel, I, I take a little dig. I say, you know, that to Jane saw that too. And she saw in his presentation of good looks and good manners and well-spoken, he was a true American, which is to say, you know, he, he presented so well, he looked like, you know, the embodiment of hope. He looked, he looked like a leader, even in, if, in fact, he didn't have the right stuff to be a leader. Kind of, a, kind of like a young, tussled up uh, Tom Hiddleston. Or even up. Justin Trudeau. Ah, dear Jane, it's the loveliest spring morning I've ever seen in Washington. Join me for a walk beneath the willows. <laughs> Not now, Frank, beloved. I'm far too languid to rise from this fainting couch. Sure I can't tempt you from your newspaper and wormwood tea? The sun is shining, birds are in fine voice, and I need to practice my address to Congress this afternoon. <gasps> Dear God, can it be true? 
Are you resigning at last? <laughs> Sweet Jane, we shan't have that discussion again. <laughs> I plan to speak about the importance of compromise on slavery. Oh, Frank, darling, it depresses me so when you persist in believing that compromise is possible over such an issue. Why, of course it is. Compromise is always possible. Or have you forgotten the way my Kansas-Nebraska Act has united the country? <laughs> in mutual animosity... Oh, but I suppose tis better to hate together than to hate separately. Dear Lord, deliver us. Goodness, Jane, you're more melancholy than usual. What are you reading, the Neurasthenics Almanac? <laughs> no, 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 just a trifling little New England Journal of opinion. Ah, that explains your temperament. You're homesick. I'm everywhere sick, sweetheart. Charmingly so. Any predictions about this summer's fishing season? I hate to disappoint you, but there's no sporting page. What of the weather, then? Are our neighbors back in Concord enjoying as fine a spring as we are in the capital? Dreadfully sorry, love, but there's no forecast either. What? Let me see this so-called newspaper. Oh, my God, it's it's nothing, Frank. You you needn't read it. The Liberator. (laughs) Odd name. Enslave the liberty of but one human being, and the liberties of the world are put in peril. (laughs) Who wrote this filth? William Lloyd Garrison? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, but but Frank... Jane, this intemperate abolitionist lunatic despises me. He says America would be better off if I were dead. Not everyone who wishes you dead is your enemy, Frank. Jane, isn't anyone who wishes you dead by definition your enemy? Your friends are more than willing to throw you under the buggy wheels, too, dearest. Your own beloved Democratic Party plans a nominating convention next month, and you haven't a sparrow's chance in a tempest of being asked to run for re-election. Of course not. My own wife doesn't support me. I've spent 20 years supporting your career with what little strength I have. But it's time you found a new line of work. Don't you remember the first thing I ever said to you? Good heavens, are you a man or a statue of Adonis come to life? (laughs) All right, the the second thing. Your hair is the rich auburn of a forest in October. (sighs) Fine, fine. At some point, I stopped swooning over your beauty and got the vapors when you spoke of your chosen profession. Does that explain your lassitude over the years, Jane? My involvement in politics? Well, all of the wasting diseases I've suffered are probably more at fault, but the politics don't help, certainly. You're not suited to it, Frank. But it's a Pierce family tradition, Jane. Besides, what better vocation for such a handsome, affable fellow? I don't know. Salesman? Minister? Nursemaid? You're neat for everyone to love you, has made you too fond of compromise. Politics is the art of compromise. Compromise makes everyone miserable. How can you say that? After all the years we've been married, Frank, do you dare to question my expertise on misery? Of course not, darling. I'm sorry. But compromise is the only path. Otherwise, we leave the question of slavery to the radicals and extremists. And that's already happened. Not four days ago, a pro-slavery mob burned the village of Lawrence, Kansas to the ground. If that's not extremism, what is? But there are very fine people who own slaves. (laughs) 
There are well-dressed genteel people who own slaves. But if you believe slavery is a sin, then people like your friend Jefferson Davis are evil. Sophisticated, but evil. But does that automatically mean that they're always wrong and abolitionists are always right? Oughtn't we support the victim, not the oppressor? Of course you think that way. You were born a victim. But as leader of the Democratic Party, I I can't take sides. You aren't president of the Democratic Party, Frank. You're president of the United States. And if you can't take a side, the only honorable course of action is to tender your resignation to Congress today. And by tonight, I won't be crying myself to sleep in a stuffy White House bedchamber. I'll be crying myself to sleep in the comfort of our Concord home. Summer in New Hampshire. It's like paradise, only there are no trees of knowledge, just birches. So it's decided. President Pierce, there's been bloodshed in Kansas. Uh. A crazed abolitionist named John Brown has avenged the sacking of Lawrence by killing a pro-slavery family on Pottawatomie Creek. It's an outrage. What did I tell you, Jane? Abolitionists are a threat to this country. I shall speak to Congress and demand they put an end to this treasonous insanity. Care for more wormwood tea, Mrs. Pierce? No, thank you. Oh, I've had quite enough. (laughs) Well, let let me ask this. If, um, so Mrs. Pierce saw the, her son, did Mr. Pierce? We don't have any evidence of that. Um, we do know that Franklin um, was making con- you know, continuous appeals to his wife to join, rejoin him socially, uh, to re- remove herself from the second floor residence room where she refused to you know, learn to leave. So it's reasonable to, to hypothesize that they would have conversations about what she was doing in these letters. There's also some indication that he joined her in spiritual readings um seances that occurred we don't have in the same way that we don't have hard evidence that lincoln joined mary uh in those seances but we do know that mary had them and we do know that uh, jane had them so one can you know could make an argument anyway that it would be unlikely that franklin wasn't at least aware of them and you're sort of saying that seances were kind of an, a kind of a thing in the 1850s and 60s Oh yeah, very much. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, the, 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 the research that I needed to write the book, uh, probably half of, of which re- was about that with the, 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 the normalization of the supernatural in American culture at that time was quite surprising. You, know, you sort of imagine that those were more sensible times, you know, you, you, we, I think largely assume that uh, sort of grounded rationalism would have been the, you know, the flavor of the day, but in fact, it, you know, highest levels of society, very favorite pastime was, you know, conducting conversations with the dead. You also posit, and this is weird, this is another place where we parallel and it's kind of scary, uncanny one might say, Jane is the abolitionist in the marriage and Franklin is kind of, he is, you know, as well as a doe face. Are there any in the letters when she wasn't, uh, you know, having conversations or, you know, exchanging love notes with her dead child? Is there any indication that she did lean towards abolition? Not not really. It's certainly not in as strong strong terms as the novel posits. But we do know um, that she was actually very politically 
uh, uh, educated. I mean, she would attend when she finally did come out of her room toward the latter part of, of the term. Um, she would attend meetings of Congress and sit in the gallery and watch the debates and discuss them with her husband. She was a very intelligent woman and very, um, uh, she hated Washington, but once she oh, yeah. was forced to be there, she was very alert to the political goings on. And so we could assume that she was a, a close advisor to her husband. Was there any indication that she hated Washington so much she was tempted to serve cherries and ice milk to her husband? Now, now listen, we can't accuse every first lady of assassination. <laughs> a recurring theme, though, of women who don't want to go to Washington and then something terrible happens. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I mean, when you think about the White House, as I did sort of in the lead up to writing this book, and just imagine it being a place you don't want to be. You've lost all of your children. You, it's not a house. It's not even a proper office. It's, it's in it's really special. terrible shape, according to your book. It, it was, yeah, and remained so really up until Truman and the, you know the major renovations there in the fifties. It was a always cold, um, uh, often uh, you know the, it was it was very difficult to get the place warm. If you don't want to be there, you really don't want to be there. <laughs> I mean, we just spent four years where there was no warmth in that house at all. So, That's right. <laughs> yeah. and the first lady that allegedly did not live there either. She True. Didn't want to be there either. Right. Well, um, I mean, talk about demonic opportunity. Yeah. Okay, Andrew, you focus on the radiant boy, the you know murdered child, the, the dead child that is Benny Pierce, but you also talk about some other specters in American history, like slave labor, that uh, is uh, stoking the stoking the furnace in the White House. Where did you come up? Why did you add that touch? Just to give it a little um, political relevance or some historical relevance. In part, I think it, it was impossible to, I mean, it's, you know, The Residence is a thriller, it, it, so it's not, um, it doesn't have the same responsibilities as a historical document as a proper work of history would, but it was impossible to write that book in that period in the lead up to the Civil War and not address slavery, obviously. It would be just irresponsible, among other other flaws. So I had, yeah, I used the figure of, of the, uh, you know, the people feeding the furnace and the, the white house was very cool image yeah it really it worked and it's and it's and it's it, you know it's symbolic of the labor that in part you know built the white house maintains the white house keeps it warm but are largely unseen and uh, you know intentionally so and so the idea of 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 these people unseen keeping the upper floors warm for the receptions and uh, meetings i i felt uh, fit so can we let's let's pull this back um, to Pierce's actual presidency. Um, Pierce is consistently rated generally the penultimate worst president next to James Buchanan. Any insight on why he's been considered if he wasn't actually so bad, Andrew? Well, this is moving into sort of, you know, proper historian territory and leaving the novelist <laughs> in the dust. But I, I think I, for me on a, and I was interested more frankly in his character uh, and then, you know, his record, but as a character, I think he's an interesting figure. He's almost, I think of him as kind of almost the proto telegenic president that he, as I, as I mentioned, you know, he, he was handsome. He spoke well, he, he was recruited repeatedly 
by the Democratic Party as a leader. And he was actually very well liked from what I understand that, you know, he was a very congenial, very affable kind of person. The first so. president you would want to have a beer with. Chris. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. And he, and he engendered great loyalty among his friends and Nathaniel Hawthorne being one. Hawthorne loved the man. He, he, he repeatedly, um, you know, sort of showed up at dire moments in, in Pierce's life to support him and, and write praising uh, essays and histories of, of him. I've read his historical, bi I've read his campaign biography of Pierce, and it's one of the scariest things Nathaniel Hawthorne ever wrote. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. So he here's a guy who people are buttressing all of, all through his career. And then he gets to the White House where the moment of American history is is acute. Um, we have, and he, he, in relation to specifically slavery, and there needed to be a strong decision maker. There needed to be um, courage and vision and bravery and principle. And Pierce didn't really have any of those in sufficient quantity. Would you say that was due to his own character? Well, actually in the book, he's told to stand down by the ghost of his father or the vision of his father. So is that your way of interpreting his character that he had the potential for greatness within him, say, but he was just really too much of a coward to take the kind of stand that, you know, he did. He had an opportunity to free a slave who was persecuted and prosecuted under the Fugitive Slave Act, and he refused. So was that innate to his character? I see him as someone who um, was suffering from depression, from, from enormous grief. Mm -hmm. And was overwhelmed by the responsibilities of the moment and the and the position, and all of those things combined left open a space for, in the novel anyway, for evil to enter, for for uh, for a demonic influence, um, which you know, if according to demonology as a myth, it's not just any old person who gets visited by a demon. It's someone who has a space, an absence, a crack. Mm -hmm. Uh, for for that for that to get in, and Pierce Pierce certainly had many of many spaces for that to enter him. Paul, what it, again? Paul brought Andrew to us, and it's been a delightful discussion. So we'll let you wrap up the discussion. So, do you have any idea when you're uh, the the hybrid the docudrama about the horror of the Pierce years. Do, uh, any projection as to when that will we'll all be able to see it? Short answer, no, but we're doing, uh, they've got a deadline of uh, the sort of early fall to put, to, to tape it, put it together. And then it's, then it's a matter of putting it on the schedule. So maybe, you know, maybe within this year, it's good that we're in a pandemic and there's not the distraction of, you know, pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one. Final, I, I have a final. Who, who did you hear first, everybody? Andrew Piper says the pandemic is good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say, without the distractions of pleasure, is I believe like the Hayes White House motto. <laughs> <laughs> and that's sort of my I, maybe my final question would be: if there were one other president, you would write a gothic horror novel about whom would it be? Oh, that's this. That's easy, Truman. Um, really? Yeah. Really? Well, we know that in his letters, he uh, reported hearing footsteps, scratches, voices in the White House in, you know, at his office door when he was signing off on 
on on the deployment of the atom bomb. And so wow. we you, know, you could easily you can easily imagine uh, the pressure that he would have felt during that that moment while right you know experiencing the supernatural. Okay, wow. you better write that book fast because one of us is going to grab that. Idea. Yeah. <laughs> Holy smokes! Yeah, it's really interesting. And then it, it, this is a you know sort of homework uh, if anyone's nerdily interested. But if you look up um, the White House reno renovations of the fifties that Truman initiated, you'll see a picture in the sort of hollowed out White House of a figure, uh, a shadowy figure, shot against the far wall of a man who was not there the moment prior to this photo being taken. Mm. Hmm. Well, well unfortunately, uh, Andrew, I, I don't think anyone who listens to our historical comedy podcast are nerds, so. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> not even our one Macedonian fan? Not, we have four Russian fans. Ibor, we're looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> TV Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written and produced by Gina Bukola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. This episode's sketches were performed by Gina Bukola, Sandy Bykowski, Ramona Joy, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClure. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects produced at freesound.org. DB Comedy logo designed by Adam L. Harlett. The Electables logo and presidential caricatures by Dan Polito. The Electables concept created by Patrick J. Riley. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's website, dbcomedy.com, or DB Comedy's host page on simplecasts.com, and follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to like. <laughs>